Well, this has been a year of good news, at least if you are a farmer or one who enjoys the fruits of what farmers do. Uh, I know that Roger and William and others who farm uh, have been very grateful for a, a wonderful growing season. After several years when we didn't have ideal conditions, this has been just almost off the charts good in terms of growing crops and growing fruit in specifically is what I have in mind. Uh, many of you had the privilege uh, this summer to go out and pick peaches, for instance, and it was like a banner crop for the fruit growers as well. I understand they had to even thin the crop out because there were so many peaches hanging from the trees that they were going to break the trees down if they didn't take some of the fruit off before it reached maturity. Now, that's good news. That's good news if you're a farmer, but it's good news for those of us who like to enjoy the fruit as well. I love to eat peaches, and so a great peach crop is, a good, is good news for me as well. Really, when you think about the harvest, that's what a, that's what a farmer or a fruit grower, someone like that, that's what they, give, that's what they live for year-round. Everything they do is aimed at that once-per-year harvest. When you think about fruit growing, certainly science and advanced technology have yielded some new insights and some new methods into growing fruit, but in reality, the process hasn't changed all that much through the centuries. You still have to tend for and nurse the trees. You have to hope for good weather and proper rain. You have to patiently wait for the harvest. In the New Testament, when we read about Jesus talking concerning raising or bearing fruit, he was talking to people who knew that business very well. Uh, many, perhaps, were directly involved in the fruit harvest. Uh, and he frequently used fruit growing and fruit bearing in his parables and lessons. Probably, especially, grapes and grape vines were under consideration when Jesus talked about bearing fruit. But he would often use analogies relative to fruit and fruit bearing in his teaching. One of the plainest and most remembered passages is the one that Trent read for us earlier from John chapter 15, beginning verse 1. We won't read the whole thing again, but here, think of some, some passages from that famous text. Jesus said, I am the true vine, and my Father is the husbandman. Every branch in me that beareth not fruit he taketh away, and every branch that beareth fruit he purgeth it, that it may bring forth more fruit. I am the vine, ye are the branches. He that abideth in me and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit. Herein is my Father glorified, that ye bear much fruit, so shall ye be my disciples. I want you especially notice that if you do not bear fruit, you'll be cast away. Fruit bearing is absolutely necessary. If you, were a, if you have an orchard, uh, and you had some trees, and on those trees there were some branches that did not bear fruit, what would you do? Well, you would obviously cut them off. you get rid of the non-fruit-bearing branches. What Jesus is saying here in this famous text is that spiritually we will be cut off if we don't bear fruit for Him. And so fruit-bearing is a necessary sign of discipleship. Do you notice down here? Herein is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit, so shall you be my disciples. Bearing fruit is linked with discipleship, and those things cannot be separated. This morning, we want to talk about bearing fruit, about the necessity of it, about the importance of it, 
And I hope that in our lesson this morning we can say some things that will be helpful and encouraging to us as we strive to live for the Lord. I want to stop here for just a minute to say thank you for being present. What a beautiful day we have to join together in worship. And we're glad for every one of you that's come to join with us in this service. We hope above all else that God will be pleased with what we do here this morning. We think we do that by worshiping Him just as He has directed in His Word. We pray that He will be glorified. We pray that all of us will be encouraged and edified in spiritual things. For our visitors, we're grateful for your presence. We want you to come back whenever you can. And we're always open to questions. We're always open to Bible study. If you are have questions that you need answers for, or if you just have a desire in more Bible study, please say a word and we'd be anxious to uh, accommodate you in those ways. But we're glad for the presence of everyone here this morning. Bearing fruit. Bearing fruit is an absolute necessity. We must bear fruit if we're going to be pleasing to God. There's something interesting here. If I've counted right... At least 44 times in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, there are references to bearing fruit. Now, that's a lot. You have to agree. And, of course, Matthew, Mark, Luke, uh, and John, some of those are parallel accounts. But my point is there's a lot of reference to bearing fruit in the Gospels. But when we get to the book of Acts, I don't read a single time where any reference is made to bearing fruit. So a lot of talk about it in the, in the life and preaching of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, not one single reference to fruit or fruit bearing in the book of Acts. Now, why do you think that that's so? Do you think it's so because the, the disciples didn't think that was an important concept? They just sort of disregarded or disallowed. It wasn't important to them. Fruit and fruit bearing didn't matter to them after Jesus uh, was ascended to heaven. I think, obviously, that's the wrong answer. I think the right answer is that in the book of Acts, what happens is that you see the disciples putting into practice the concept that Jesus taught. Jesus taught the concept, and the book of Acts describes how his followers put that into actual practice. Jesus taught, you must bear fruit. In Acts, in the book of Acts, we see the disciples doing it. And so, what did they do? Remember, if you don't bear fruit, you're going to be cut off. What did they do? In the book of Acts, we see the early Christians bearing fruit by a number of the things which they did. First of all, we see the disciples bearing fruit by making converts to Christ. Uh, the, The book of Acts is called sometimes the book of conversions. And that's really what it is. I mean, the, the whole book of Acts describes people being converted to Christ. Uh, lost people being brought into the kingdom of our Lord. How many were there? Well, I've challenged you with that question before, you know, and maybe at first thought we imagine, well, several, maybe a couple or three dozens. Uh, you know, we have this story of the Ethiopian eunuch or the Philippian jailer or, or Lydia, uh, you know, and we think about some specific individuals who are named. But we'd be way short if we said there were only a dozen or a few dozen who were converted in the book of Acts. Actually, in Acts, there are, th- there are thousands converted to Christ, right? Even in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost, there were 3,000 who were converted to Christ that day. In chapter 5 verse 14, it implies that there may have been 10,000 or more. 
In chapter 8, we read about the Samaritans, the city of many in the city of Samaria. We do read about individuals who were converted, the eunuch, Saul, Cornelius. Beginning in chapter 13 of Acts, we read about, we begin to read about the three missionary journeys that Paul made to distant lands. Lots of converts, lots of work in teaching and converting people to Christ. Why do you think that they did all of that? Why do you think so much emphasis was put on it? Well, I believe we could say those first century Christians were absolutely determined to bear fruit for the Lord. And so they planned for it, and they labored tirelessly to bring it about. It's really amazing that through their efforts, uh, in, in that first century time frame, within that first generation of Christians, the whole world, at least the known world of that day, had been taught the gospel of Jesus Christ. In Colossians 1, verse 23, Paul speaks of, uh, the gospel which was preached to every creature which is under heaven. So even right there in that first century time frame, they had really reached out. And I believe that they understood that this was part of fruit bearing. That it was their way of applying what Jesus taught. And so we might ask the question, are we bearing fruit in regards to making converts for Christ? It's really important. We spend a lot of time talking about it. We put forth specific efforts to accomplish it. Um, we spend a good bit of money in order to bring it to pass. Our elders work and lead us in these special evangelistic efforts, and that's all good. And uh, if we were going to, uh, you know, put a uh, sort of a quantitative amount on it, I would say we need to do more, not less. We need to work harder, spend more money, devote more time. It's all good, and it's fruit-bearing for the Lord. Now, having said that, I want to say this, that if we think that's the only way to bear fruit for the Lord, I don't think we're getting the whole picture. There's more to it than that. I'm concerned that sometimes Christians have imagined that bearing fruit is exclusively the business of teaching lost people and converting them to Christ. I think it's clearly part of it, but it's not the whole of it. Uh, we, we talked about this a little bit uh, on the Virtual Bible Study on Thursday night. And Anthony was saying that when he was a young Christian, he, he sort of got a guilt complex because uh, it was implied if you haven't led a lost soul to Christ, you haven't borne any fruit for the Lord. Well, that's just simply not the case. In fact, you might never bring a lost person to Christ. Now, you need to be trying... You need to be out there teaching and reaching out to the lost, but obviously they have to make a decision. You can't make the decision for them. So as long as you're teaching and trying to lead people to the truth, then you're doing your work, and that's fruit for the Lord. And so uh, for those who may feel guilty that, that, you know, maybe I haven't been bearing fruit. I can't, I can't name anybody specifically that I have taught the gospel. Well, you need to be teaching. But if no one has obeyed the gospel because of your efforts, that doesn't mean that you haven't borne fruit. And I hope we can emphasize that. But making converts was not the only thing that Christians did in the first century to bear fruit for the Lord. I think the book of Acts conveys a number of other things they did. For instance, one of the things that they did that we know about is that they were busy helping the needy. When there were physical needs that, that were needed to be addressed, they did that. They worked in the, what we would call the area of benevolence. In Acts chapter 4, 
Notice, very early on, the Christians at Jerusalem. It says, The multitude of them that believed were of one heart and one soul, neither said any of them that all of the things which he possessed was his own, but they had all things common. Neither was there any among them that lacked, for as many as were possessors of lands or houses sold them and brought the prices of the things that were sold, and distribution was made to every man according as he had need. We've talked before about how amazing this was, and can you even imagine the idea of selling property in order to have funds that you could use to help needy brethren? That's exactly what these first Christians were doing. And I want to suggest to you that uh, that was a form of fruit-bearing on their part to sacrificially give so their brethren's needs could be met. That wasn't the only time it happened. Uh, some years later in Acts 11, beginning verse 27, it says, In these days came prophets from Jerusalem unto Antioch, and there stood up one of them named Agabus, and signified by the Spirit that there should be a great dearth uh, throughout all the world, which came to pass in the days of Claudius Caesar. Then the disciples, every man according to his ability, determined to send relief unto the brethren which dwelt in Judea, which also they did and sent it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. Again, we see Christians busy in the matter of helping the needy. It's an important concept. It's certainly taught repeatedly in the Scriptures, and we need to be a benevolently minded people. Passages could be multiplied that suggest that need. Now, definitely the New Testament makes a distinction between the benevolence uh, that a local church might do versus that which an individual Christian might do. But definitely, we need to be a benevolently minded people. In 1 John chapter 3, 1 John chapter 3, beginning at verse 17, John writes, Whoso hath this world's good, and seeth his brother have need, and shutteth up his bowels of compassion from him, how dwelleth the love of God in him? My little children, let us not love in word, neither in tongue, but in deed and in truth. Certainly, God wants us to be a benevolently minded people. In fact, that concept among those first Christians was so common that when James needed to illustrate the connection between faith and works, he did it by inspiration by choosing this method to illustrate his point. Look in James chapter 2. In James chapter 2, beginning at verse 14, James says, What does it profit, my brethren, though a man say he hath faith and have not works? Can faith save him? If a brother or sister be naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you say unto them, Depart in peace, be ye warmed and filled, notwithstanding ye give them not those things which are needful to the body, what doth it profit? Even so, faith, if it hath not works, is dead, being alone. And so when, when James wanted to illustrate, you've got to link works with your faith to have an effective saving faith, he illustrated by talking about what was commonly understood among those first Christians, and that it was you need to be benevolently minded toward those who are in need. We've certainly been blessed abundantly, and so we shouldn't forget to bear fruit in this way. But that's not all. We know that those first Christians also bore fruit by encouraging one another. How do you describe people? That, that maybe you're trying to describe someone to a third person. And, and so you want to tell about them. You might do it by some physical trait. You know, for instance, he's that real tall guy. Or he's the fellow who has funny looking hair. Or uh, he, he's the guy that has that strange walk. You know, sort of a, a peculiar gait as he walks. 
You might describe by a physical characteristic, but I tell you what we also do. We, we describe people by what they do, don't we? We're trying to, we're trying to describe someone to another person. We say, well, you know, the guy I'm talking about, he's a dentist, or he's a mechanic, or he's a, he's a fisherman. You know, we tell about an activity so closely associated with them that they become identified by it. Well, look at this man. You know his story in Acts chapter 4, verse 36. Joses, who by the apostles was surnamed Barnabas, which is being interpreted the son of consolation, a Levite of the country of Cyprus, and it goes on. We've, we've pointed this man out plenty of times. Just recently we had a whole lesson about Barnabas. But the, the apostles gave him a surname, or we would say a nickname, the nickname wasn't given by his parents or other family members. It was the apostles who named him Barnabas. The King James Version here says that, that the interpretation of that name means the son of consolation. The American Standard Version says son of exhortation. The New American Standard Version says son of encouragement. And I think that's the one we can probably latch on to the best. He was one who was busy encouraging his brethren. And I, I suggest to you that that is a form of fruit bearing for the Lord. That when you engage in things that will encourage your fellow Christians, you are bearing fruit. Do you know today of anybody who might be deserving of a nickname like Barnabas had? Uh, somebody who really reaches out and tries to encourage others? I hope that you do because those kind of people are so valuable to know. They are a big help to us. Let me ask you a question. Do you think that you would deserve a nickname like that, son of encouragement. Have you reached out? Have you tried to encourage your fellow brethren? It is a form of fruit bearing. You must be bearing fruit to be a disciple of the Lord. If you don't bear fruit, you'll be cut off, Jesus said. What could you do? How could I bear some fruit for the Lord? Well, one of the ways I could bear fruit for the Lord is be busy thinking about my brothers and sisters in Christ and doing what I could to encourage them. It wasn't just Barnabas who was like that. Uh, we read, for instance, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 11, where the Apostle Paul saw that as an important part of his work. In 1 Corinthians 2, verse 11, he says, "...ye know how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you as a father doth his children." Paul saw that as a very important aspect of his work, and we should as well. Every Christian uh, back in those times saw a need to be active in this. It was for them a form of fruit bearing, and it should be for us. I fear sometimes that we fail to think of our brethren, uh, uh, think of all of our brethren. Weak brethren need encouragement, but strong brethren need a word of encouragement as well. Uh, we need to be conscious of what we can say and do to encourage others. And we also need to be conscious of the fact that if we don't do certain things, if we fail in certain matters, we might actually be a discouragement rather than an encouragement. Uh, we're supposed to be encouragers. So think about how you can do that positively and make sure you're not doing anything negatively that would end up being a discouragement to your brethren. Those early Christians bore fruit by understanding the importance of resolving issues and problems that came up. I wouldn't ask for a show of hands on this regard, uh, but I think it might be interesting if we could do that, if we would do that, to ask how many of you have known over the last many years about churches who had trouble, maybe even churches that split over one issue or another, very often over personal differences. Uh, 
you know, brethren just couldn't get along with one another like they should. Do churches have troubles? Well, sure. In fact, even the very first congregation of God's people in Jerusalem had its problems. There are always problems in churches because churches are made up of people, and with people we're going to have problems sometimes. But those early Christians saw an important need to not let those issues linger, not let them go unresolved or ignored. They addressed them. In Acts chapter 6, verse 1, that first church in Jerusalem, it says, In those days when the number of the disciples was multiplied, there arose a murmuring of the Grecians against the Hebrews because their widows were neglected in the daily ministration. There was problem. And, and that word murmuring there suggests that it could have gotten out of hand pretty quickly, but there was an immediate address to that issue, and it was quickly solved and made right. And from that, we see what we ought to do. When there are issues, when there are problems, we ought to do everything in our power to make sure that those problems and issues are resolved, not allowed to linger, not allowed to divide the church, to alienate brethren, and so forth. When we do our part in helping resolve problems when they come up, and they certainly will come up, when we do our part to resolve those issues, we are bearing fruit in that regard. That's what they did in Acts. Now remember, the premise of our lesson this morning is Jesus taught fruit-bearing a lot. The book of Acts doesn't mention the word fruit at all, to my knowledge. But what it does is it shows the Christians at work bearing fruit for the Lord. Finally, let me suggest those early Christians were bearing fruit by living pure, moral lives. No one here this morning would disagree with me when I say we live in a corrupt, wicked world and it seems to get worse faster. It's getting worse and worse, faster and faster. We live in a very evil, wicked time. Now, what we have to be careful about is using that as an excuse for our own failure, that we let down, that we don't live like we should because we say, well, look at what everybody else is doing. Look at the wickedness all around us. You know, other people have lived in wicked circumstances as well. Those first Christians did. If you go back historically and read about the moral conditions that existed in the first century in many places in the Roman Empire, it was very bad, likely much worse than anything that we have experienced. Those Christians, though, still understood they needed to live pure moral lives in that wicked world. To be what Christ wants us to be and to bear fruit for Him, we must keep ourselves pure. Look at one example. Again, we're trying to draw our examples from Acts, how those first Christians responded. In Acts 19, verse 18, this is at, in the city of Ephesus, a, a pagan city that had been get over, given over to pagan worship. But they were converted to Christ. What they do? It says, Many that believed came and confessed and showed their deeds. Many of them also which used curious arts brought their books together and burned them before all men. And they counted the price of them and found it 50,000 pieces of silver. So mightily grew the word of God and prevailed. Now, what you see here is these people who had been involved in that paganism, who had been involved in all the immorality that was associated with it, when they were converted, they understood they had to give that all up and live pure lives for the Lord. And they did. And what was the result of that? Notice, so mightily grew the word of God and prevailed. Because they were doing the right thing. The gospel uh, and the kingdom were benefited in the process. They were bearing fruit for the Lord. And we must bear fruit in that way too. We cannot influence people for good without living pure moral lives. We can't bear fruit if we're not living right ourselves.
And so, as you think about fruit bearing, I can't emphasize enough that Jesus said it's absolutely necessary. You can't be a disciple of his without bearing fruit. If you don't bear fruit, you'll be cut off and cast into the fire, he said. Obviously, very important. We must be doing it. The book of Acts describes people who did. They, it describes people who changed their lives. I'm going to tell you, in reality, when you stop to think about just these five points that we've made, that's not typical. That's not, that's not the way people typically live. It's not normal. Why did they do it? Why did they change their lives? Why did they live that way? Well, because they had learned about Jesus, about salvation that's available through Him. They wanted to be a true disciple of the Lord. What about you? Are you in a right relationship with God this morning? Have you obeyed the simple gospel plan of salvation, which says we must hear the truth and believe it, repent of our sins, confess our faith in Jesus, and be baptized? If you've not done that, you need to respond without delay. If you need more study, say so. We'd gladly study with you. If you're a Christian already, but you realize that you haven't been bearing fruit in the several different ways we've described this morning, or perhaps in other ways that you might think about, if you've not been bearing fruit for the Lord, if you've not been faithful to Him, we urge you to come back in repentance, confession, and prayer. If we can help in any way, let us know while we stand and sing this song. Amen.